This week on Writers Inc. Those were learning curves for me. Um, you know, and it, it's very possible for somebody to just hit it out of the park with a debut novel, but you know, it's just like anything else. I mean, if you decide you want to build a house, you're not going to go down to Home Depot and buy a couple two by fours and get it right the first time out of the gate. You've got to practice a little bit, um, and, and writing is no different. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. All right. Welcome to episode number one of the Writer's Inc. podcast. I am Jay Thorne along here with J.D. Barker. What's up, J.D.? I'm doing good. How are you? This is excellent, man. This is our first official episode of the Writer's Inc. podcast, and I think we're both pretty excited to be here. Episode one. I, I listen to so many different podcasts, you know, and they're at, you know, this is episode 500. This is episode 400. <laughs> episode one. That's a little daunting, but, you know, hopefully one day we'll look back on it and we'll be a couple hundred episodes in. I sure hope so. I mean, it's, uh, they, they go by quickly. That's what's great about podcasting. It, it, it's very similar to writing. If you just do a little bit consistently and you, you look back and you're shocked at how much you've accomplished. And I think podcasting is a, is a parallel there for writing. So this is pretty exciting. Cool. Well, this is the first time I've ever been on as any form of a host or co-party or co-host or whatever we want to call it. I've always been the, the person getting interviewed. So this is the first for me. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see how it's going to play out. Yeah, I'm excited for it. Although I am going to kind of put you back into the interviewee seat for, for this particular episode because I thought, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I have I've had several podcasts over a number of years and uh and uh, I really enjoy sort of listening to other people's stories and, and learning from them. And I thought because you're a co-host on this, we should probably start with you and get to get to know you a little bit and, and sort of your journey. But uh, ra rather than sort of asking you to go all the way back to your birth and work your way up, <laughs> I, I thought maybe we could change it up a little bit. And, uh, and maybe we could start by you telling us what you're working on right now. Um, well, I, I just figured out how to do what I consider to be impossible. I'm, I'm writing two different books at the same time. Um, so I'm writing one book in the morning, then I, I stop and have lunch and I, I literally switch hats and I jump into a totally different story. Um, and, and it's partly because from a pacing standpoint, I, I tend to write, I write a lot. I do about two to 3000 words a day. Um, I, I do this full time now. So I get up first thing in the morning and as soon as the, the coffee IV line goes in, you know, I just start churning out the words. Um, but I find that with any particular story I'm working on, you know, if, if I get to like maybe 1500 words or so, then it starts to like the pacing tends to slow down a little bit. And I like to have quick, short chapters, you know, fast pacing, no dull moments at all. Um, so I'm finding that if I jump between multiple stories, I, I can do that with, with multiple stories. Um, so that, that's kind of where I'm at. Um, and, and I just, I've got a couple contracts that I have to, to satisfy and, you know, I figure, well, why not knock them out in three months instead of six? Right. Right. What is your, uh, what is your goal when you sit down for a session? You said two to 3000 words a day. If you're working on two projects, does that mean you're doubling your work count or are you splitting that total? No, I'm, I'm splitting it up. I try to keep my scenes between a thousand and 1500 words. 
Um, so I'll usually, you know, if I hit 1500 or so on the first book, then I'll take a break and, and grab something to eat. And then I jump into the second book. Um, but usually around 3000 words total for the day. I, I find that, um, you know, writing is weird. It's, it's kind of like a muscle, you know, if you, you know, if you're working a full-time job and you're still trying to get that first novel done, if you can come home every night and kick out one or 200 or even 300 words, you know, that that's a page a day. I mean, you've got a novel in a year, as long as you can do that. Um, but, but it is a lot like a muscle. If you get used to doing 300 words, you know, the next day you come in, you do 400 words. And before you know it, 400 is pretty easy. And then you're shooting for 500 and then you're shooting for 700. And, you know, that, that's kind of how I work myself up to, to my current level. Um, but I do find just like working out, it goes away just as fast. If yes. I take a vacation or I go to a conference or something, if I'm not writing every single day that I, when I finally do get my butt back in my chair, you know, it, it's like squeezing water out of a rock again. And you kind of have to work your, your way back up to that. Um, so I'm, you know, by doing this two books at the same time and keeping my pacing up, like it, it's becoming easier and easier, um, as I go. And it, it, I tend to, um, you know, we're going to give out a lot of advice on this podcast, you know, that's kind of the goal. Um, and I tend to reach to a lot of the, you know, the, the, the publishing stars of today's world to, to get that advice. You know, like I'll email Stephen King, I'll email Dean Coons. I'm, I'm cooperative authoring a book right now with James Patterson. Um, so those are the kind of guys that I go to for advice because they've done it. They, they've been through this, you know, from start to finish, you know, Coons told me that he had 15 books out there before he had a, a bestseller. Yeah. And his first, his first bestseller was the first time that he ever worked without an outline where he worked as a pantser. Um, you know, and like little tidbits of information like that, you know, it, it's, it's so helpful and God knows I stumbled along the way trying to figure things out. Um, you know, so the point of this is just to try and help people, you know, not, not stumble over some of those same hurdles anymore that or you know, that, that I did or that you did and, you know, hopefully get them past it. So how do you figure out which advice to implement and which advice is not really going to work for you? Well, you know, it's, it's, I kind of take a consensus view. Um, you know, like we'll take the pantsing versus outlining thing because that's, that's always a, a big topic. Um, I've worked from an outline. Like when I worked with, with Patterson on the first book, we sat down and we had lunch down in Florida. Um, and he had read the fourth monkey, which was my, my second novel. Um, and he, he gave me a great blurb for it. And he's, he's like, this is going to get you a seat at the big kids table. This is a, a solid book. And, and, you know, he just, you know, just to hear all that stuff was just crazy, you know, coming out of James Patterson's mouth. Um, but then, you know, we start talking about writing a book together and, and he told me that he works exclusively with outlines. He, he doesn't work without them and it, it keeps his, you know, keeps him efficient, keeps him moving fast. And I told him that I, I've never worked with an outline. I've always, I've always pantsed it. Like in, in my mind, I, I come up with my characters and I get them to the point where they're as real as, as anybody else, you know, as real, real as my next door neighbor. Um, then I drop them into a particular scenario and I, I just let it play out, you know, and, and, and all the, you know, everything seems to land in the right boxes by the time I hit that last page. Um, but when I'm writing at the beginning, I've got no idea how these stories are going to end. And, and he's the opposite. And I told him I didn't think I could work from an outline. Um, and I actually talked him into writing a book without an outline. The first time he's, he's done that since probably Along Came a Spider, since his early books. And, you know, he, he had a lot of fun with it. I, I think it kind of refreshed the, you know, the, the process for him. It was something new. Um, and at the same time that we started talking about working on something together with an outline and, and he's kind of, you know, brought me around a little bit to that, um, because it, it can speed up the process. It makes things a lot easier. I mean, I'll, I'll write my last book. I think it ended up at around 207,000 words. Um, then about 50 or 60,000 words ended up on the cutting room floor to get the novel tight. Um, and you know, when, when you follow a process like what he lays out, that doesn't happen. Yeah. You know, you, you don't waste words. You, every, every word counts. And, you know, so I'm trying to find a, a sweet spot somewhere in between. Um, 
Koontz told me that he sits down every day and he, he reads what he wrote the previous day and he edits that and he finds tunes, fine tunes it and gets it perfect. And then, you know, an hour or so into it, then he starts working on new words. He just continues the story. And the next day he sits down and he reads what he wrote the previous day and just keeps going that way. Um, and his word count is insane. He, he puts me to shame. Um, but when he's done, like he's basically got a finished novel. There's, there's no second or third draft anymore. He, he hits the end at the end of that book and you know, it's, it's done, it's polished and it goes off to his editor. And, and the ones that I've seen from him at that stage are, are flawless. There's no typos. There's no copy problem or copy edit problems. I mean, it, it, it's insane, but like, the, you know, that that's what I want to strive for. You know, I, I, I create that or find that brass ring through one of these guys. They teach me a little something and I hang it above my head and say, okay, that's where I'm going to, I'm going to try and grab. I'm going to try and do that. Um, and each time I, I, I hope that it, it makes my own writing a little bit better. That's, that's fascinating because you, you hear sort of these very, I did anyways, these very distinct, um, disparate, uh, methods f- from, from writers who are incredibly successful. So, and I know that you've done uh, a lot of decades of book doctoring and coaching. Uh, so when you, when you encounter, say someone who's relatively new to writing, you have this whole spectrum of advice that you've both lived and gotten. What do you tell the, what do you tell the person who's coming very new to the page? Well, I, I see a lot of, I, and I, I still mentor people. I, cause I, when I started getting published, I, I missed that. I missed the feedback of working with somebody new and helping them, you know, fine tune their, their writing and get to the point where they get published. So I, I still take on um, students and mentor. Um, but I, I see a lot of the, the same problems. Uh, passive voice is always huge. Um, you know, in everything, showing versus telling, you know, it's, it's the same problems repeated over and over again. And I, I you know, I've, you've probably heard this before, but, you know, most authors have to write anywhere from a half million to a million words before they actually find their, their real voice. Yes. Um, and, and I'm no different. I mean, I've, I've got two or three novels on my computer that are never going to see the light of day, um, you know, unless my daughter finds them after I'm dead and you know, pulls, a, <laughs> pulls a time clancy on me and gets them out there. That could happen. Uh, <laughs> it could happen. Um, but, you know, th- those were learning curves for me. Um, you know, and it, it's very possible for somebody to just hit it out of the park with a debut novel. But, you know, it's just like anything else. I mean, if you decide you want to build a house, you're not going to go down to Home Depot and buy a couple two by fours and get it right the first time out of the gate. You've got to practice a little bit. Um, and, and writing is no different. So do you, do you counsel young writers or inexperienced writers to start with an outline or to start with some characters and an idea and just roll with it? Well, that's the thing. And I, and I learned when working as a book doctor, you kind of have to figure out what works for each individual because some people, their, their brains don't work that way. Like you can tell them to outline and, and they'll create an outline, but then they'll write, you know, the first chapter and then they start drifting off. off into the weeds. Yeah. And, and, you know, the outline is off to the side somewhere. Um, and, you know, I kind of like, and, you know, I, I try to feel them out, figure out what I think is going to work for them. And for me personally, like I don't outline, but I, I do create a beginning and a middle and an end. Like I've got those, those are in, in mind. And it, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's, you know, the ending that I've got it when I start the book is going to be the ending that I'll actually end up with. Um, but it gives me a, a destination. You know, it's, it's no different than driving from like New York to California, you know, you're going to end up in LA, yeah. you know, so it's okay if you take a detour and you stop here and you stop there, as long as you get back on that highway and you, you know where you're going to finally end up. Um, so, you know, I, I try to feel out where people are and, and, you know, some people are very organized and they, they have to have an outline and they will follow it. Um, but you have to be careful with that too, because there's plenty of people that, you know, in published authors, New York times bestsellers, they use outlines and I can tell, you know, as mm-hmm. soon as I read that first chapter, like I can feel the, the formula, you know, like clicking away with each, each beat of the story. Um, and that's no fun either. 
Um, I think it was, it was Stephen King. You know, a lot of the, the advice that I got initially came from his book on writing. Right. Um, it's, it's a phenomenal novel. There, there's two books that are sitting on my desk at any given time. I've got on writing and I've got Strunk and White's um, grammar book. Mm. Um, it's basically all, all you really need. Um, but he, he had pointed out that if he doesn't know where the story is going, you know, the, the reader's not going to figure it out. You know, and, and I think that's key. I think our subconscious picks up on, a, on an outline. You know, they, they see that structure or where our brains see the structure, even if our conscious mind doesn't. Um, and it, it takes a little something away from the story. Um, but I, I, again, just to get back to your initial question, because I'm going off in the weeds now, um, I just kind of figure out what, you know, where everybody's at. So like I, I wrote Dracul with Dacre Stoker. He's Bram, Bram Stoker's great grandnephew. Um, and he came to the, the table and we wanted to write a prequel to Dracula. Um, but he didn't know where we were going to go with the story, and I wasn't sure either. And then he, he threw two facts out there to me. He told me that, well, first, Bram pub uh, wanted to publish Dracula as a true story. Like, he presented it that way. Um, and his publisher basically pushed it across the desk to him and said, no way, we're not going to do that. Um, we need to make some changes. And they turned it into a work of fiction. And, and in doing that, they cut out the first 102 pages of the book. So he, he sprung those two facts on me, and that was enough to rope me in into wanting to write the story. But then he went on to tell me that you know, he used to be a history teacher, um, and he gave me some of his writing samples. And you know, he, he, can, he can write, but it, it's very dry. It, it reads as nonfiction, as if he's writing a textbook. And he knows that, and we, we joke around about it. We, you know, we told our agent when we first brought this book to her, um, Kristen Nelson, um, I, I, I told her, well, if Dacre were to sit down and, and have to write out a recipe to bake a cake, it would be extremely detailed. You would get every single step, you know, everything that you need to get that cake, and it, it would be perfect. Um, if you gave me that same recipe, you know, I would I would probably tweak it a little bit and you would end up racing to the grocery store to buy everything. You probably double park in front. You run through the aisles, grabbing things <laughs> off the shelves. You forget to pay on your way out. And, you know, you'd be in your car hyperventilating, trying to figure out what just happened. Um, same recipe. We both end up with the same cake, but we get there in, in two different ways. Um, so we quickly realized in, in with working with him that he was great when it came to providing factual data. Like if I needed to know what Bram Stoker's bedroom looked like when he was six years old, he could tell me. Um, if I needed information on his brothers and sisters, he could tell me. So he became a sounding board for information um, and providing facts and research and things like that. And then I, I did the writing, um, you know, with other people, it, it's been a back and forth. You know, I write a chapter, they write a chapter, you know, we just follow the back and forth. Um, so you just have to figure out where everybody's comfort zone is. Yeah, that's a, that's a great transition. You, you mentioned your agent and one of the, one of the reasons I've been sort of a, a not sort of a, a fanboy of yours for a long time is you've lived in both of, of what a lot of writers consider to be two different worlds, which is the independent publishing world and the traditionally published world. So I'm wondering if you could sort of talk about what, what space you occupy there and, and how you got there. <laughs> you know, half the time, I'm not even sure. <laughs> um, yeah, so it, it started with my first book. My first book is called Forsaken. Um, it's a full-on horror novel. And, and in the story, I had to explain where the wife buys a journal. So just to get to that last page and get it down on paper, I wrote that she walked into Needful Things, you know, Stephen King's store, and bought it there. Fully expected to have to change that because you can't just do that without a bunch <laughs> of lawyers jumping down your throat and pounding on your door. Uh, but my wife read it. And she said, no, I, I like this. I think we should just get his permission to use it. How do you get Stephen King's permission to do much of anything? Um, turns out all I had to do was ask. Um, we, had, we had a mutual friend and he gave me uh, Steve's email address and I sent him the book and I got an email back. He said, I absolutely love this. Go ahead and use it. Let me know if you need anything. You know, so this was before I had an agent or anything like that. So I'm staring at this email and, and I thought I had it made because now I've got a book that I know is good. Right. I've got Stephen King's blessing to use some of his characters in there. How hard could it possibly be to get an agent? Um, so I sent out a query letter to 200 of them. I used a form letter. 
don't ever use a form letter to query <laughs> agents. I, again, this was a mistake that I made. I didn't know any better. I, I Googled, you know, query letters on online. I found a template that I liked and I just shot it out to everybody. I didn't you sent 200 out? Two, two, 200. Um, you know, I, I didn't pay attention to any of their requirements, you know, as far as formatting, you know, how many pages they wanted to see. Everybody got the same thing. Everybody got the same <laughs> message. Um, they were they were lucky that I even put their name in the email. It was it was such a blanket thing. Um, and, I, and I got some responses back and I got a couple of offers, but you know, nothing that, that made it worthwhile to me. So I ended up self-publishing the book. Um, but I knew that if I were I was going to do that, and this has been key for me from the beginning, I knew if I was going to put the book out myself, it needed to be something on par with a book coming out of like Random House, coming out of one of the top five. If I couldn't self-publish in a way that was, you know, in, you couldn't tell the difference between the two, I, I wouldn't do it. Um, so I hired professionals across the board, you know, cover designers, formatters, proofreaders, copy editors, um, and, and put this book through the ringers, you know, before it came out. Um, and it ended up selling really well. I, I ended up selling about a quarter million copies, um, which was enough to, you know, to make me a, a decent chunk of change. And when was this? Um, and, what year approximately? Um, November, 2014, 2014 when it, uh, yeah, when okay. it came out. So yeah, we were a couple of years into Kindle. Um, and you know, like I, 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 I did well with it. And at the time I was writing the fourth monkey, my second book, um, and I finished it and, you know, I kind of intended to self-publish that one too. Um, because you know, the finances are, they're better. I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, we, you get a 70 you know, cent payout or 70% payout versus, you know, roughly 25 cents on the dollar. If you go through to the, the traditional route. Um, you know, you've got full control over everything. If you're willing to take that on, a lot of people don't want to, but, right. you know, I don't like having an answer to other people, you know, so that, that, you know, the fact that I could make money doing that and not have to deal with all those other headaches that I, I was aware of because I've got so many friends in the industry and I hear about these, these nightmares all the time. Um, you know, I figured, okay, I'll self-publish it. Um, but my wife, you know, again, way smarter than me. She goes, well, just do this. Just query a couple of agents, a couple of the ones that you really like, you know, and see what happens. And if you don't get the results you want, you can always self-publish a, a month or two later. Um, so I said, okay. So I, I reached out to Josh Mallerman. Um, you know, we had known each other because we were both up for the, the Bram Stoker Award for debut novel. He had Bird Box and I had Forsaken. Um, and I told him that I was going to hunt for an agent. And he started telling me about Kristen Nelson, who is, is phenomenal. Um, and she's kind of a, a dark horse. There, there's a website out there. Um, um, oh God, now the name escapes me, but you can, you can, uh, publisher's marketplace. Um, you can research the stats on an agent, just like a baseball card. You can look them up and you can see what kind of deals they're getting, who their authors are, you know, how much money they're basically bringing in. Um, and, and I started checking, you know, various agents and using that as the, you know, as my, my, my sounding board. Um, and, and I realized that she was like a dark horse. She worked out of Colorado. She's not in New York. But virtually all of her authors were New York Times bestsellers or well on their way to getting there. And she had started with all of them from the get go. Yeah. Um, and she had done some phenomenal deals, you know, for like Hugh Howie, she was able to negotiate a deal where he, he kept his ebook rights and she sold his print rights, you know, things, things like that, like yes. cutting edge kind of stuff. Um, so I reached out to her and we had a great conversation. I sent her the fourth monkey. Um, she got back to me and she's like, I absolutely love this, but it's a thriller. I don't represent thriller authors. Um, so you know, we kind of parted ways and, and I went ahead and I queried, I had 53 agents that I had narrowed down my list to. So I sent out a new query. Um, this time I, I did personalize it. I did check to see what they were actually looking for. Uh, but I queried 53 of them and, and offers started coming in. I, I ended up with 13 offers of representation in about two weeks. Um, and I felt a lot like that kid in high school who plays football really well and all the colleges are trying to, trying to rope them in. Trying to get recruited. Um, yeah, and then I, I went back to Publishers Marketplace again, looked at all their stats, you know, tried to you know, compare this one to that one, talked to all of them on the phone, 
Um, I, I called a lot of their authors and spoke to their authors to, you know, just to get the real scoop on what they were really like to deal with and, and things like that. Um, and I found one that I, that I really liked. Um, I had a hard time talking to her and I, I don't want to throw any names out there, but yeah. you know, she was, um, she was a phenomenal agent in New York. She's got a bunch of New York times, bestsellers, uh, authors that she represents, um, great track record. But every time I hung up the phone with her, I felt like I just came out of the principal's office. Like I just got scolded for something. Um, and you know, I started thinking like, do I really want to spend the rest of my life, you know, talking to this person? I mean, she may do a lot of stuff for me from a career standpoint, but like, you know, like I'm almost shaking, you know, hanging up the phone with her. Like, I don't know that I want that relationship. No, that, and, you um, can't underestimate that. I think that personal connection is really important and it's something you sense on a, on a gut level. It's not really something intellectual or financial. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but I, I was an idiot and I went ahead and called her and, and told her I was going to go with her. Um, this was a Sunday, I think about four o'clock in the afternoon. Um, cause she, she actually, she called, we spoke on Friday and she, she received a copy of fourth monkey on Friday and she read it over the weekend. She like dropped everything and read it. And she called me like Sunday afternoon, like around two or three or something. And she's like, I have to represent you on this book. Um, and, and I, I said, okay, let's do it. Um, and then like an hour or two later, I get a call from Kristen Nelson and she, she's like, I, I, I've been thinking about this book all week long. I know I told you I can't rep it because it's a thriller, but I, I, I need to rep this book. Um, so I had already committed to the other agent, and now I've got the agent that I actually want on the phone telling me that you know she wants to represent it. So I had to call the first one back and basically tell her uh, I'm going with somebody else. So that created some animosity. <laughs> um, but you know, Kristen has been phenomenal, and the agent-author relationship is you, you can't understate it. it I, I speak to Kristen as much as I talk to my wife. You know, you, you have to have a good dialogue. You have to understand each other. And, and she's just, you know, she's cutting edge in a lot of different ways. She understands what's going on in the self-publishing world and what's going on in the traditional world. Um, and she's fine with allowing her authors to walk the, the line between them. Um, and I'm, I'm really doing that now. Like Fourth Monkey was traditionally published. Um, I, I couldn't even tell you how many different publishers are on that book at this point, but it's, it's about two dozen different countries or I know, languages, I mean, um, and who knows how many different countries based on that. Um, but she did she did a couple book deal for me with that. Um, but then with my latest book, The Six Wicked Child, I, I didn't have a contract on that one. So we went back to the the publisher that had published the first two books in the series. And I literally ended the second book with To Be Concluded. So everybody knew there was going to be a third book, but there was no contract for that third book. Uh. Um, so the publisher made me a really strong offer on it um, for, for U.S. You know, English rights. And um, I turned it down. And I, I went to Kristen and I said, listen, like I... I I'm comfortable self-publishing this book in, in all the English speaking territories, but what I'd like you to help out with is what you've done on the foreign side. If I publish it in the U S and UK and, and Canada, places like that, can you still sell it in all these foreign territories? And you know, it was an experiment. You know, I wanted to see what would happen and, and it worked out really, really well. I ended up doing the self-publishing thing for, for us, you know, UK, uh, Canada and all the English territories. And the book is sold in pretty much all the other countries that my other you know, books from that series sold in. Um, so it, it's a mix, you know, I've got Harper Collins and Random House and people like that putting it out overseas, but you know, I still have the self-published side over here. Um, and honestly, I think that that's where a lot of this is going. You know, it's all, you know, it, it's, it's like a tool in your toolbox, you know, is the traditional publisher going to be the tool that you need for this particular book? Um, and they, they can, you know, they can bring a lot of things to the table that you still can't do on your own. Um, you know, getting into a bookstore is very possible as a self-published author. I mean, Forsaken, I just saw it the other day at the Seattle airport bookstore. You know, it's still a self-published title. You know, when you start selling enough copies, everybody starts picking it up. Um, but you do have to make it available through certain sources. You know, Baker and Taylor, Ingram Spark, you know, there's, there's ways to get those things right. done um, that a lot of indie authors tend to, to overlook. 
Um, so I think if you're going to do the indie route, again, you know, going back to what I had said earlier, you need to do it on a level where your book can't be distinguished from a book coming out of Random House. And that, that's you know, probably the best advice I can give any indie author. You know, don't leave money on the table. Put out an audiobook. Put out a hardcover. Put out a mass market paperback. Follow the same release schedule that they would. Um, and, and you'll be surprised what kind of results you get. Well, that's that's a really interesting observation. And I, I want to kind of poke into that a little bit because you have a long history of being uh, sort of a, a, an entrepreneur or a business person. And, and I'm wondering if you have sort of a, a high level of approach to business in, 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 or an ethos or, you know, how, how do you approach the, this whole thing? Because I think a lot of writers, especially inexperienced writers, think that, well, you just go off in a cabin and you type on a typewriter or a laptop and then you hand it to someone and you just get money. But I, I don't think that's necessarily how it works. So what, what is your approach to the business of writing? I don't know that it's ever worked that way. And I, I, I talked to Koontz one time. He, he sent me an email and he said, I'm in the middle of signing 40,000 book plates. Oh. Um, it took him about two weeks to do. And he, he tends to listen to a lot of music as he does these things. And he was listening to, I think it was the, the Graceland album from Paul Simon. But for like the last 10,000 that he signed, he listened to the same song over oh. and over again. You know, I just... You know, but That's you know, brutal. This is, this is yeah, but it's Dean Koontz, and he's doing the same thing that I was doing like a week before. You know, I, I wasn't signing forty thousand of them, but I was signing book plates. You know, yeah. and I and all these these big name authors, they all do that still. They they still put in the work. I, I think what happens is people, you know, like if a, a writer is in a movie or a TV show, they they create this particular character that has you know Pierce Brosnan sitting in a little attic room you know, typing away and turning out page after page. And he's got the nice little stack of papers next to him when he's done, he hands it off to his agent, um, you know, who, who vanishes until those pages are done. Like the agent's not even on the phone with him telling, you know, kicking his butt, <laughs> getting it done. Um, but he, but he hands it off and the book goes off to his editor and then he spends the next, you know, nine months or whatever, doing something different. Um, it, it doesn't work that way. Like you, you have to put your butt to the grindstone. You're writing the book is the, the easy part to me. Like you, you have to create the perfect book from the get go. It's got to be a five star book because um, in the end you're, you're creating a product. Um, and I think it's important that authors actually realize that you're creating a product that somebody out there has to buy. And, you know, you need that product to be as perfect as possible. So you need to you know, knock off all those things and take off those boxes. Um, but yeah, I've seen a lot of people, they kind of, you know, get up on their soapbox and I, I don't want to edit. I don't want to do this. I don't want to change that. This is the story I want to tell. Um, and that's all cool, but you know, it depends what your audience is going to be. Like if you're, you know, in my world, I'm shooting for mass market. I want as many possible people to pick up my book and buy it as I can. Um, and in order to do that, I've got to satisfy the, the widest net of, of people. Um, so I, I try to do that. I, you know, I, I purposely keep stories that are, you know, are fresh, but also accessible to, to everybody. Um, you know, I think about those things before I actually start writing a book. You know, if, if I wanted to write an Amish steampunk novel, you know, if I had that in the back of my head, you know, I, I'd say, well, I can write it. But, you know, the 12 people that are going to buy it, you know, is, is that going to really you know, be worth the three months I'm going to put into it's probably it? Probably more like 10. But yeah, 12, yeah, maybe, maybe 10. But, <laughs> you know, like I, th these are thoughts that I tend to have at the, the get go. I mean, like right now, like I, I've got I'm, I'm working on spec now with publishers, which is weird. Like so instead of turning in a finished book. Like I gave my editor uh, a PDF that was probably about 10 pages long and it had you know, the backup book blurbs for ideas of books that I want to write. So about one or two paragraphs for different ideas. And I said, you know, we basically told him, you know, JD's willing to write any of these. Which one do you think is going to be the you know, the one you can market the best, you know, a year and a half from now? Because, you know, they don't, pump, they don't put them out as fast as indie authors do. There's a good year and a half to two year lag time. 
Um, so I, that's kind of how I've been working now. They've been picking the ideas from my little you know list of you know stories that I want to write, and, and I just kind of sit down and write those those stories. Um, so it's it's changed. It evolves a little bit. What what are some of the things that you still do on either a daily or a weekly basis that would surprise uh, surprise us? Um, I still use copy editors. Um, I, I still have beta readers. I still have alpha readers. I go through that entire process and I, I you know, go through a copy edit before my agency is a book. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. And one of the things that I learned in working with agents and editors back in the book doctor days is, you know, if you go back 20 or 30 years, editors had time to take on a project. If they liked a book enough, they would take it on and they'd find the time in their schedule to, to tweak it and help that author get it done. Um, but in today's world, they, they don't have that time. They've got a stack on their desk of, of you know, just boatloads of work. And they just, they don't have the extra, you know, couple hours a day to be able to put into something. So I found that if, if you get a book as perfect as possible before an agent gets it, before an editor gets it, mm-hmm. uh, it does two things for you. Um, that editor is going to pay a lot of more money for that book you know, just because they know that they don't have to put any you know, real time into the tweaking it. And then also when you start getting edits back from that editor, um, there's very little that has to change. You know, they're moving a couple commas around, you know, maybe they want to you know, change this sentence or drop this particular paragraph, but there's none of the big wholesale changes that you would see on a book that would be considered a project. Yeah, you're not going back doing a complete rewrite. You're not moving this chapter or taking this chapter out or, you know, putting 10,000 words in here. None, none of those things happen. Right. Um, and, and that's important to me because, you know, like, as you're writing the book, you know, all these things are totally in your hands. You know, until you actually show it to somebody else, it's your book. You know, you're, you can you know, do whatever you want with it. But the second you sell it to one of the, the big publishers or an editor comes on board, now you've got your agent weighing in with changes. You've got your editor weighing in, weighing in with changes. Um, you've got the marketing people at the publisher's house telling you what needs to be changed. You know, like this lead character's name should be this because that tests better than the name you're using now. Hmm. Um, you know, the, we don't like your title. We would rather use this, you know, things like that. So... You know, I, I try to field as many of those problems before it even gets to that point and, and try to, to whittle them out. Um, Dracula is a good example of that. Um, you know, Put- Random House, um, it was Putnam, GP Putnam, Random House. They, they put out the book. They wanted to change the title on it. They felt that Dracula would be a problem because you know, people would think it's you know, Dracula. Um, they were worried what would happen if somebody went on, on Google and started typing in Dracula or started typing in Dracula. You know, Dracula comes up. But what they didn't realize, you know, the same thing happens with Amazon or, or did happen. What they didn't realize is the opposite effect happens when you actually put out a book called Dracul. When people start typing in Dracula, Dracul comes up first. Um, and I told them I'm perfectly happy, you know, changing the name if they can come up with a name better than Dracul because Dracul conveyed a lot of information. You saw that name, you knew it was immediately related to the Dracula family. Right. Um, it's not quite Dracula, so you know that it's something different. You know, so subconsciously that communicated a lot of information, and that's not something that I came up, you know, upon on my own. I I, I tested, you know, f- friends and family. I tested, you know, groups. Um, I do a lot of market research before I put anything out, you know, to figure out what floats and what doesn't. Even with my name, I mean, my full name is Jonathan Dylan Barker. I, I put a post out before Forsaken came out and said, well, if you had to buy a book based solely on the author's name, which name would you choose? And I had uh, Jonathan Dylan Barker. I had Jonathan Dylan. I had J.D. Barker. I had Jonathan Barker. I had, like every variation of my name up there. Um, and J.D. Barker got like 80 some percent of the votes. You know, so that's what I went with. Um, and I tend to approach all this that way, you know, no, no different than, you know, some, a cereal company putting out a new breakfast cereal. They're going to test it. They're going to make sure that it floats before they, they spend the big money. And I try to do that with my books. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is, uh, I think this is a great start to, to our, our new podcast here. And maybe, maybe one way we can kind of wrap up this conversation is I'd like to know what you think is 
on the near horizon for publishing? What, what are you excited about? What are you looking towards that might not necessarily be sort of fully embraced right now, but it's, it's on that near horizon? Um, wow. It's changing so fast. It's, it's, it's kind of a loaded question. <laughs> um, but the, the one thing that I've been watching extremely close um, is called the Expresso book printing machine. Um, this is a machine that's roughly about the size of a desk, and you can print any paperback book that's in its catalog in about five minutes. Um, full color cover, it looks no different than a book coming out of KDP or a paperback you might pick up in the store. And I, I think that's honestly going to be a game changer if they can get the cost down, because you take a small little independent mom and pop bookstore, you know, they throw this in the middle of their floor, and all of a sudden, they've got every book, you know, and they can get it to you within five minutes. That's faster than Amazon. Yeah, that, that's a game True. changer. Yeah. Um, but at the point right now, the, the cost on that device is just too prohibitive. It's about $100,000 to put that machine in a bookstore um, and, and nobody can afford it. Um, there's uh, Shakespeare and Company in New York and, a, and, a, and they've got, I think, two or three locations that have those in there. Um, there's another bookstore in Pittsburgh that has one. So they're, they're slowly rolling out and there's people testing that, but they haven't quite embraced it yet. Um, and the other thing that I found is, you know, the, the catalog that's available, it, it's fed by Ingram Spark, which is one of the big distributors out there. Um, not all the big publishers are on board with it. Um, so I, you know, I've got books with, with kind of everybody at this point. So my, it, it's got every one of my self-published titles in the catalog, but my books that are with Random House aren't in there because Random House doesn't want to sign on the dotted line to make the books available in the system. So for indie authors right now, it's, it's actually, you know, it's, it's something I think they should be embracing. Um, yeah, but we'll see. You know, it, all it's going to take is somebody to come up with a leasing model. You know, make it cheap enough for people to, to be able to put it out there in their stores, um, and it, it could be a game changer. Who yeah, knows? I can even imagine that being a big game changer at things like airport bookstores and and malls and and places like that where there's high traffic. Those machines could be cranking out books almost constantly. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's like a red box for books, right? Yeah. You know, so you put it in the terminal at the airport, and people can can get whatever book they want. You know, just just like that. And I don't know how good that is for the airport bookstore. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> but it's you know, technology tends to drive the way the consumer operates, and I, I see that as a leader at some point in the future. It's not quite there yet, but it's it's close. Excellent. Well, man, this has been a blast. I'm I'm so glad this is only one of many to come. Yeah, I can't wait. We're gonna have so much fun doing this. Yeah, we're we're gonna have a uh, we've got already got a bunch of guests lined up. We've got some recorded. Uh, we're not gonna tease them just yet because we don't know what the order is gonna be on the release. But uh, it's all gonna be uh, coming really soon. We're we're really excited about it, and uh, I look forward to working with you on this. Yeah, you too. I can't wait. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.